This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by Southern Cross University. Reset your future and start studying today with Australia's number one ranked psychology degree. Hi, and welcome to the Curious Life podcast with Yana Firestone. Yana, a therapist with nearly two decades of experience under her belt, has an extensive amount of experience when it comes to talking to people about grief and trauma. This episode's guest, Marcia Aboud, is almost the poster child for that. In her book, Every Shitty Thing, Marcia tells the story of an abusive father, drug-addicted brothers, loss of life, failed marriage, a fatherless daughter, and what took her to the brink as well where she felt she had no way out until a familiar voice brought her back to reality. Yana and Marcia talk about the events that shaped the pages of Marcia's book and you'll hear just which roads she chose to go down that has led her to her current success and how it's all shaped her future. You'll meet Marcia Aboud in just a moment on the Curious Life podcast. Well, Marcia, thank you so much for joining me on The Curious Life today. Thanks for having me, Yana. I'm very excited. Yes, well, I'm very excited because I've just read your book, Every Shitty Thing, and as the title suggests, there are a lot of shitty things that have (laughs) happened to you from a very young age all the way into adulthood. And I hear you laugh, which is wonderful to hear because some of the things that you've been through, a lot of people don't survive. It's incredible that you've been able to come out the other side of all of those experiences and put it in writing and then feel like you're able to talk about it and share it with the world. So For people that haven't read the book, I'm wondering if maybe we should start at the beginning and we don't have to give everything away because obviously I think people should go out and read the book. Thank you. (laughs) Things started, they were a bit rough from the get-go, weren't they? They were, yes, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up? You know, you describe your dad as having quite a temper and there were a number of people that he would take that out of and you would witness to it and it wasn't just family members that were suffering but it was also your beautiful animals that would come into the home. Yes. There was a lot going on there from a young age. There sure was. I still feel that I'm kind of a bit of a lucky one compared to my brothers because, yes, my dad was a very violent man He just, he didn't know how to express his emotions at all, so he never showed love or anything. And he took his violence out, his fits of rage out on mum, mostly, and my brothers, secondly. So I was mostly witness to everything that went on in our home. And we hid it very well because mum and dad didn't like to air the dirty laundry because that's how it was back in the day. A lot of people, after they read my book, people that have known me from my past, they were quite shocked to know that half of this stuff went on because we didn't really reveal much to anyone either. He was a bit of a sociopath, really. So what do you think people would have would have made of your dad? What was he like outside of the home? People who were just like acquaintances, they thought dad was a really good husband and a good provider. I know they would have said that. He was a very stoic man. He was very, not very friendly. 
and he didn't let a lot of people in and he didn't talk much either. He didn't he wasn't big on words, using his hands mostly. People kind of looked up to him. He worked his whole life, of course. He owned his own security business and he had lots of colleagues, lots of he was very admired, I guess, and looked up to. No one really had a clue what was going on in the home. Yeah, and that's such a common story when you hear about family violence. So often there are very little clues in the outside world as to what's really going on. Yes, yeah, that's right. Do you have any sense of where that came from in your dad? Do you know much about his upbringing? I actually don't, you know. I know that he lived through the Second World War. He was a young boy when Germany invaded Italy back in 1943, I think it was. Dad was about 10 years old, I think. He saw a lot of stuff. Mum told us a few stories about things that happened to him back in the war. He saw some really horrible things, but I don't know. I just assumed that his father was probably a very violent man. I know that my grand... I never met him, so I don't really know, but I do know he was a prisoner of war for most of the war, and... Yeah, I think he probably had a lot of problems after that when he came back from that. I'm not sure where it all come from for Dad. He never spoke about it and we were never brave enough to ask him. It's strange because you think as you get older too and Dad got older and even though he did, he mellowed a lot in his old age, we were kind of sort of a bit close as an adult. I still couldn't ask him those personal questions and I really, really wanted to. So I didn't tell my father I was writing the book. I started writing the book while Dad was still alive. He actually passed away halfway through. I was kind of relieved, really, because I really didn't know how to tell him that I had written this book. So he died never knowing that I was writing this book. What was that like, reliving your childhood? while your dad was alive and you actually had a reasonably good relationship at the time. I know, I know. It was pretty horrendous, Yana, writing the book. I can look back now. 2015 it was. Dad died in December 16. So it was a good year and a half. I was I was practically nearly finished the book and it was very emotional and some days I wanted to ring him up and just ask him questions but I, I, I couldn't do that. I could never do that. I knew he wouldn't have approved what I was doing. You know, he's a very private man. And, uh, yeah, he'd be pretty mortified knowing what I'd written in that book. <laughs> well, you don't hold back, that's for sure. No. But I did. Trust me, I did hold back. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's a good point. We get a good look into your childhood and, in fact, your whole life, but I imagine that's probably the tip of the iceberg. It is, yeah. Like that book could have, seriously, I could have written a 1,000 pages. I think it's 360 or something, but I did write about 800, so I had to cut a lot of it. A writing mentor said, you know, you're a first-time author, Mars. You can't write a 1,000-page epic war and peace book. Um, <laughs> But I could have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it was really hard, you know, trying to put in, to paint this picture so it all kind of flowed as well. Because I do, you tell the story from um, the present and then you go back and you grab backstory and that. You've got to weave it all in. It's very difficult. Yeah, so it was hard to know what to, to leave in and what to take out. Did you have any sense of whether 
you were going to publish the book while your dad was still alive? I didn't really think about it until near the very end. And I thought, you know what, I am going to because dad doesn't read books unless they're National Geographic. And he's a hermit down the South Coast. He lived a very hermit life, didn't have any friends, didn't go anywhere. I just didn't think he'd ever read it anyway. I didn't think he'd ever know about it. So I I did. I was going to publish it. But then, as fate had it, he died. So I didn't have to worry about it. And your mum was, uh, I mean, a hero in a sense throughout your life. She was fiercely protective of you and almost protected you more than than your brothers, it seemed. Yeah, she definitely did. Mum had three sons before I was born and uh, all she ever told, she told me all she ever wanted was a girl. So I was her favourite. I do know that. (laughs) And she treated me that way as well. So, yeah, she did favour me. And I think that's probably why I was protected quite a bit as well. Females to dad were the weak, they, they were weak and kind of a bit pathetic. So he didn't rage his violence onto me, I think, because I think he kind of looked at me as if I was just insignificant. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He did. He, he hit me a few times, but not compared to my brothers. You know, it was horrendous what they went through. Yeah, 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 and you talk a lot about your brothers and and how different they were and their experiences of growing up with a violent father yes. and then what that did to them as young men. Did you ever talk with them, even as a child or as you got a bit older, about their experience? We did when they were older, not when we were young. We never, in the moment of when it was all happening. We never spoke about it. But as we became adults, yes, we definitely spoke about it. I also spoke to Tony. He's the brother closest to me. So Tony was two years older than me and Greg is four years older than me. So Greg left pretty early. So we weren't as close, even as adults, we weren't really as close. I couldn't really talk to Greg very well. I don't know what it was with Greg, but we just didn't really gel. We didn't really have a close bond, but Tony and I were very close. Spoke a lot about it as we were adults. I think about the families right now who all over the world might be stuck in quarantine or in lockdown altogether. And there are so many kids that are vulnerable and at risk anyway, but have the safety of being able to escape to grandparents' places like your brothers did or go to school throughout the day. And a lot of that's being taken away at the moment because of this pandemic. And I just wonder how are those families surviving under the, the stress and the pressure of job losses and being all together? And what are the protective factors? When you guys were all together, what do you think it is that kind of kept you all going? I do think about that, Yana, you know, about the people who are living it today and I I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine because our solace, our peace, if you like, was when Dad went to work and he was a a night worker and then he'd sleep through the day. So it's not like we, he was there a lot, but when he was there, it was pretty horrendous. So, but that, all of us as kids, I know, we used to hold our breath just waiting for like 5.30 in the afternoon to come 
because we knew mum would be getting his dinner, you know, and packing his lunch pots and he'd be out the door by 6.30. It was just like this peace came over the house. It was, yeah, that was, that was our saviour really, just that he was a workaholic. So to think of those people today who don't have that and they're in a house with a, with a violent man, with someone, you know, who has rage issues, I just, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. You there, Yana? Hello? Next on the Curious Life podcast, Yana and Marcia are joined by something or someone very special. Someone who is not so keen on the story of Marcia's every shitty thing to be revealed. Who that might be and why is seconds away. No, I can't hear you, Yana. I don't know why because your recording thing doesn't stay muted. So I'm not sure. Very strange, yes. Maybe it's Dad. Maybe he's standing over my shoulder, <laughs> cursing me. Wow, that's weird. <laughs> oh, you poor thing! Oh no. no, it's okay. I think we're I think we're okay. Okay, good. But for the record, any spirits who are joining us for this conversation, please don't interfere with our equipment because these are important stories to share. Yes. You need to leave now, Dad. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, God, I just got a sign here. Oh, what does that mean? What do you mean? What did you well, get? Oh, no, on the computer. Oh. <laughs> For anyone who might be wondering what's going on, our recording just completely stopped working. I was muted and we don't know why and we're wondering if we have any friends from the other side who might be interfering yep I think there might be a room full of them here (laughs) (laughs) they're all waiting for their turn in the spotlight (laughs) yeah well one of those people that is probably on the other side and is a warm and and probably very loving spirit is your brother Tony. Yes. Who you were talking about before and and he was the one that you were closest with of the two and you describe him as being this really charismatic, the hot guy at school that all the girls wanted and he was a performer and tell us a little bit about your brother Tony. Tony was a character. He was a larrikin. He had a wicked sense of humour. Uh, which always fascinated me considering how much hell he went through at home. Mm. But outside of home when we were at school or if we were with our friends and that, he was just the funniest thing. And, uh, yeah, he just wanted to be a Hollywood movie star. That's all he ever wanted. Of course, that wasn't supported at all. Like creative things in our home were not supported. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Greg was a musician. Tony was an actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to be like a makeup artist. So all of those things were not worthy things to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we had to do it. We had to talk about those things kind of in private and when Dad wasn't around. But Tony, yep, that's all he wanted to be. He wanted to be an actor. He was just he was just the funniest guy. He was loving and warm and just really caring. But then he had this flip side because he was an alcoholic. Alcoholics run deep in our family. Mum was an alcoholic, very functioning alcoholic she was, I might add. 
Tony was not so functioning because when he drank, he became a bit like Dad. He was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde, Tony. He was two people in one. When he drank, he was not, he was a very violent person. He was not a good person. But when he wasn't drinking, and he didn't drink for um, 12 years at one point, joined AA and was sober for 12 years. He was amazing then, family man, brilliant. That speaks a lot about the trauma that he went through and how that played out for him as a young man and the impact that it had on him and that maybe that's what was coming out when he was drinking. Yeah, it was. It would have been all of his resentment, I think, and all of Mm. his anger and just his feelings towards Dad. He was very entrapped, I guess. Tony was quite rebellious as well. Greg, Greg, the older one, he'd like take it. He would just, his fate would seal. You know, sometimes I would see him take this deep breath and he would just take whatever was given to him. Tony, he fought it. He fought it all the time. So a lot of the times Dad tied him up and did it. You know, changed. Dad had handcuffed. It was this insecurity. So Dad would always handcuff him to the bed and um, just bash the shit out of him. And he would still try and fight. Dad would tie his legs to the bed, handcuff him, and Tony would still be rolling around, screaming, trying to get away from him, even though there's no possible way that he could have. Yeah, so he was very different to Greg. That's probably what came out in him when he was drinking. The image that you painted there, you just think those instincts for fight and flight, you know, but for him, obviously, the fight response was very strong. For him to have that response over and over again, knowing that it was futile, yes. but still giving it everything he could, it just says so much about him as a person, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I was very different again. I was very quiet, very shy, very reserved. I was terrified most of the time. That's how I feel about my childhood. So I was very quiet. I actually didn't speak much. Because when you spoke, depending on what mood Dad was in, you just copped the rap. You just never knew. So that's why I kept quiet most of the time. But Tony, he just, I just never understood why. It's like he provoked him. Didn't know how to shut up. Greg and I knew how to shut up, even though it didn't help Greg's cause. Tony didn't know how to shut up. (laughs) And maybe that's that performer in him as well, you know. I think so, yeah. Couldn't switch it off. Yeah, yeah, probably. Further into the book, well, in fact, you sort of reveal it early on, but then we sort of go back and learn more about Tony. But Tony did end up taking his life as a young man and he was in prison at the time. Is is that right? Yes, that is yeah. correct. Tell us a little bit about that experience because that, that alone must have been one of the most traumatic experiences. Horrendous. It was horrendous, especially because, as I said earlier, Tony, when Tony had his first daughter, he wanted to turn his life around and didn't wanted to be a good dad. So he joined AA and he became, he turned his life around totally. He had two more daughters after that while he was clean and sober. And he was clean and sober for a good 12, I think it was 12 years or 13 years. All that whole time, good father, good citizen, sponsor in AA, just the model citizen, you know. Never ever lost his temper because only alcohol made him do that. Because he wasn't drinking, he was just like this perfect man, really. He still pursued his acting the whole time. And it was acting that actually made him fall off the wagon. Eventually he landed this beer commercial 
you know, they wanted him to do a beer commercial and he went to Queensland to film it, I remember, and it was 4X beer mm-hmm. and he went up there to film this commercial and he said to them, because he had to swig the beer and act all blokey and that, I think it was on a sheep farm, I don't know, <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, I can't do that, I can't drink the beer. And they're like, well, why not? And he said, because, you know, I'm an alcoholic. They go, yeah, can't just spit it, just fake it, just spit it, hold it in your mouth and just spit it out later. Anyway, he swallowed the beer. He ended up swallowing this beer for this commercial and then that was all it took him, even after 13 years. That's all it took him to fall off the wagon, as they say. And his life just spiralled downward after that. A couple of years, it only took a couple of years, I think, and he was back into drugs. Then he started dealing drugs, something he never really did before. You hear these stories about alcoholics or um, drug addicts that if they if they're lucky enough to be clean and then stay that way excellent but a lot of them when they fall off the wagon or however long that is it's like it's it comes with vengeance you know it's like Mm. 10 times worse than it actually was before that's that's how he ended up in jail because he'd never been in jail he never had a criminal record yeah. But he just spiraled downwards, started dealing drugs. Yeah, and the police cottoned on to him because he just he was from this little country town. So it's not like he was in the big city and could fall under the radar. Yeah, the police were watching him and found out things about him and that's how they caught him and they put him in jail. At this time, Tony was a bit estranged from all of us. I think he just felt so much shame going back into that life again that he couldn't really face any of us. That's what I think. So none of us had really spoken to him. I know mum and dad hadn't spoken to him for about 12 months when they found out that he was in jail. That was in the January of that year, January 2004. He committed suicide on the 26th of March that year and he was still in jail waiting, waiting for his trial because they wouldn't post him bail. He wasn't allowed out to wait for his trial. What we learned after that is that he he actually thought that he was going to be in jail for a really long time. All of his demons came back. He did it one lunchtime. He hung himself with his bed sheet Mm -hmm. while all the other prisoners were in the lunchroom or whatever it is that they they do. I think just the shame of his life. Because he had a little bit of a journal too. It all came out in the uh, coroner's report. Little different bits and pieces that we all put together. It's just tragic just such such a tragedy because he just really thought that he could he wouldn't be able to turn his life around in reality he probably would have got about 18 months they told us later but I guess that was 18 months he couldn't face in there where are you at in terms of your thinking about it suicide is something that some people just really get it and they can forgive the person other people find it very difficult to forgive and to understand and I guess everybody is different how was that process for you coming to terms with that loss yeah well everyone is different and I can tell you his three daughters still to this day are very angry they don't understand it Mm. but I And my brother Greg, we definitely understand it. And I forgave Tony a long time ago. I forgave him because I do understand why he did it, probably more than anyone else, I guess. I just don't feel 
I just don't judge him for it. I, I just get it. I understand. Any of us could have been in the same predicament. You know, there's been a few times, Yana, when I've wanted to do it myself. I wasn't in jail, though, obviously. I just always thought about my daughter every time I happened two or three times that I just yeah, couldn't couldn't live with. You just cannot escape it. Yeah. You cannot escape this life that you've had. It doesn't matter how much work you do on yourself or how much forgiveness you think you're doing and that, you still have nightmares about it. I know I do. Yeah. Greg probably does. Yeah, Greg came with his own problems as well. I'm surprised Greg is even still here, seriously, because he's OD'd on heroin quite a few times and has brought him back. So the fact that he's still here is a bit of a miracle because I, I kind of believe that Greg copped most of it. Tony had it pretty bad, but I think Greg had it worse. But he's still around. He's still kicking. He's a survivor. He is. And I think too, like I said, we're very different. Greg and I are very different. Tony and Greg were very different. And I think Tony's more like, he's probably more like me and more like mum, I guess. And he was he was just very um, emotional and sentimental and very feeling and always talked about his feelings and stuff. Greg's not like that. He's stoic and doesn't really say much. And um, you just have to look at him to see he's damaged, keeps it to himself. He's not a heroin yeah. addict at 60 now. He was for like 40 years. Yeah, so he's a bit of a miracle story there. You touched just then on your own thoughts of, of suicide throughout the years and you describe a couple of moments of those very vividly in your book, in the car and driving towards the Gap, which is a famous location in Sydney where a lot of people end up taking their lives. First of all, what was that process like writing about those very, very dark and low times in your life where you came so close to actually making that call? Yeah, to write about it, it's funny, Yana, because it came, it's not like I've thought about it a lot, but when when my writing mentor said, you should, you need to write that. So when I did start writing it, the process, it was very, I couldn't believe how much detail I remembered. It's like an out-of-body experience. You kind of have to look at it as if, you're writing about someone else and not really about yourself. Mind you, it was still very emotional. Yeah, it was It was a very dark moment, one of the darkest moments in my life. I was yeah. an adult and I had a, how old was she then, a 15-year-old daughter at the time. But I was just in such a hellish place. I just, it was methodical. It was just, it's like I was on autopilot and, um, I just felt like I'd be better off like where Tony is. I just need to be with my brother. I remember thinking that, getting in the car and driving there. And it wasn't like the gap is today because it's fenced off. There's lots of touristy things there. Back in the day when I did that, Mm -hmm. I drove out there, it was very open. It was just like walking down over to the beach, walking over to the cliff. There wasn't a lot of people around like there is today. So it was a lot easier, I would think, back in the day. Today it's all fenced off and there's gates everywhere and there's surveillance cameras. There was none of that back then. When I got out, I I remember parking there and when I got out the car, well, when I went to get out of the car to walk to the top of the the gap to the cliff face, I heard Tony's voice in my head. I just, I heard him clearly as if he was sitting in the car next to me. And he said, don't do it. Don't do it, Mars. 
don't do it. Think about Morgan. Think about your daughter. Don't do it. I'd open the door to step out and then I closed the door and I just started bawling my eyes out and I just drove home. But, yeah, he he spoke to me. I know he did. That's so incredible. Yeah, so he saved me really, ironically. It's it's something that, I mean, such a powerful moment to be that close and then to hear your brother almost put his hand on your shoulder and say, don't do it. Yeah. What what was it like for you immediately after that, after you sort of broke down in the car? How mm. do you then recover from such a pivotal moment? I don't really remember driving home, Yana, but I, I was at home and I was mm. still crying, so I must have cried all the way home. Very dangerous, I probably couldn't see. But I just remember being at home and opening the door because it was in the dead of night and my daughter was in her bedroom. Like I just mm. left her there. When I got home, I just couldn't believe. It's like it wasn't me that did it. I just couldn't believe that I did that. And I was just so grateful to be back in the house. It's just so grateful. I was just so grateful that I didn't do it because then it was just all about her. So I stopped thinking about myself then and it was just all about her. I didn't tell anyone, of course. And, yeah, yeah, that's all I remember about that, just feeling grateful and climbing into bed and, crying myself to sleep. I do remember that. Wow. And there would have, I imagine, just been that relief for Morgan and knowing that she didn't have to go through that. Yes, yes. And we never really spoke about it till a long time later. And, you know, Morgan's tried to read my book, but she's, she's only like a few, every time she picks it up to read it. So I get so emotional, Mum, I start crying, I can't. You know, I can't fit because there's things in that book that Morgan doesn't know. Yeah. I'm not sure she's even read that chapter. I'm not I'm not really sure. She would have because it's the beginning, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's why she was so emotional because she didn't, didn't realise the detail of it, she didn't realise how close it came to being a reality. I suppose there's a lot in there that would have been very challenging for her to read, particularly the stuff about her grandparents. You described in the book that your dad just totally mellowed and became sort of the doting grandfather when Morgan came along, which was night and day from what you and your brothers experienced growing up. So I was going to ask what it must be like for Morgan to have to rectify these two images of her grandfather that she must have. I know. It's funny because it is like two different people to her. She knows all the stories and everything now, but she spent a lot of time with mum and dad when she was mm. young. She certainly didn't know the man that we knew. And Tony and I used to laugh about it. Tony and I used to think, Jesus, you know, where was that guy when we were young? Because, <laughs> you know, Tony had three daughters as well. So he was great with all of them. He was just this doting grandfather and would hug them and sit them on his knee and that. Like he never, you know, never did that ever even. When he touched us, it was to belt us, not to, not to <laughs> give us any affection or anything, but he was so affectionate yeah. to them and that. It's just weird. I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. how that is even possible. But I think there was yeah. one passage in your book that really resonated with me. It was something your mum said about you'll just never understand until you're a grandmother the love that you have for your grandchildren that's so different to the the survival mode that you're in with your own kids 
and I've got a two and a four-year-old, so I'm I'm in the trenches with in yes. terms of surviving in terms of the, the toddlerhood and the tantrums and all of that. I think that really resonated with me because as parents, we don't really get to enjoy parenting the way that the grandparents do. They get the best bits and then they hand them back. That's it. That is yeah. so true, Yana. It is so true. And you'll know that one day. But yeah, my daughter's in the trenches with you right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She's got an 18 month old and a seven year old. So oh, I'm yeah. a doting grandparent now. But yeah, I have so much patience. And sometimes she gets cross at me. Mum, what? You know, you never let me do that. You never, you know, you never let me do that. <laughs> Just let him cry. Put him to bed for his afternoon nap. Just let him cry and I can't. I go, no, no, I can't do that. I'll just pat him to sleep. It's like, mum, for God's sake. (laughs) So, yeah, you are very different. So in that respect, I can understand because Mm -hmm. that's why Dad mellowed. He probably, in all honesty, I, I reckon Dad knew exactly who he was and what he did and the damage that he did to us, but he could never, didn't matter how old he got, he could never verbalise mm. his regret or ask for forgiveness because mm. he just was too proud or too whatever that is that he was. Yeah, he just could never, he could never admit. But I know deep down he was he's making up for lost time with the grandchildren. He was treating them the way that he should have treated us and he knew it. I know he did, even though he never said it. That's some kind of closure for you in a sense, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Falling in love is something most of us aspire to, especially when they are the ones. Every little thing they do, how you can't believe you could be so lucky, sometimes it sticks. But what if one or both of the partners have a secret life? What then? With the world rapidly changing around us, I believe now is a perfect time to reset your future and take back control. If you've been thinking about changing careers, taking up study for the first time or reskilling in a new area, well, I've got good news for you. The Southern Cross University Psychology degree is currently ranked number one in Australia by the Good Universities Guide. You can study online or on campus, full-time or part-time. To find out more about which study option will best suit you, go to scu.edu. Edu.au. I'll pop the link in the show notes and on Instagram at the Curious Life Podcast. Reset your future today. Talking about Morgan and the grandchildren, I was curious to think, I wonder what she feels about the honesty that you used in talking about her father and your relationship with her father, George. It wasn't just at home. The trauma didn't end once you got married and left home. It really is every shitty thing. I mean, you've really been through it all. You talk really openly about, well, I don't know if it was, if we could diagnose it as this, but a, a sort of a postnatal depression that you were in for the first couple of months, which is so common. It is, yeah. After having a baby and, and doesn't get talked about very openly. 
what was that like for you being so honest about that experience of being a, a mum for the first time and the challenges that you were feeling emotionally? I can't help but be honest. I wanted to share that. It was a big part of me and, and, it, and it was really relevant to just how my life was unfolding as well because when I met George, he was like the opposite of everything I'd ever known in my life because I never wanted to get married because I always thought I'm just going to end up with a husband who's just like my father or just like my brothers with their addiction problems. I met this sweet young Greek boy, only child, and he was the epitome of every dream that I'd ever had about the perfect kind of person, the perfect man. Well, boy, at first, he was only 19 when we met. But, yeah, he was just the most perfect guy and I just felt so lucky. I felt like I had dodged a bullet. I really did because, you know, where I grew up too, Yana, all my friends and that, they were dealing with their own fathers who are alcoholics, brothers who had molested them, raped them, you know. It's like where I come from, I was not an unusual story. We just never spoke about our stories some level that there was shit going on at home just didn't talk about it so when I met and married George I felt like I dodged this bullet then after I dodged it I decided never having children don't want to do that don't want to pass on the alcoholic gene or the messed upness of what my family was and I just thought I come from bad genes don't want to pass it on George was fine with that. He said to me, I remember, he said, "Um, I love you and I'm happy with you and if all we ever have is each other, then that's all I'll ever want. And that just made me fall in love with him even more. (laughs) Then I accidentally got pregnant (laughs) and I was devastated and almost had an abortion, had it booked in Mm -hmm. and just couldn't do it because I, I knew deep down George really wanted that that child and I knew he'd be a great dad as well. I still struggled with it. I hated being pregnant. I kind of knew what my life wasn't going to be mine anymore. So I was just very, I wasn't all encompassing and loving about being pregnant and having a child because fundamentally I didn't really want it. I think women too who comes as a shock or they're not really feel they're not ready or they haven't done enough in their life, I think maybe now, I know it's hormonal and everything, but I think maybe they probably suffer a bit more with it than the other women who just can't wait to have children and, you know, do IVF and do it, like go out of their way to be pregnant and just love it and everything. Sure, there are those women. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that I've known many of them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, I had a shitty pregnancy and I think that's why my postnatal depression was so bad. But then I don't, you know, I had mum who was a great support and I had George who was like an angel, you know, like any other husband. I don't know if I would have coped very, I just, I'm not sure what would have become of me. He basically took over. He took over. He helped me out of it. So he was a fantastic father. Like Mm. he just loved, him and Morgan were like two peas in a pod, you know. I was definitely the third wheel. And they just got closer and closer as as the years went on. Yeah, they had a great relationship. And it, it was because of him that made motherhood easier for me, I think. I was lucky yeah. there, but of course, it was all at the start and it wasn't to last. <laughs> yes, well, as seems to be 
kind of the pattern for much of your life. What went up often came down and a lot of your fears were realised when some things came to light about George and you talked about not wanting to end up with an addict and pass on those genes and, and unfortunately it sort of ended up that way. It sure did. So, yeah, my husband was living a secret double life probably for about five years and I didn't know, didn't know any of it. And uh, he was a gambler, he was a drug addict, he was smoking meth. He was, so he was a very organised, functioning addict because how I didn't see that and how I didn't know, I just, you know, for years, years of counselling has still, you know, it took me years to get to a place where, well, you know what, they're just manipulators and they know how to hide. They know how to hide things. Yeah, but it was very traumatic for me to find out about this secret that I knew nothing about and it happened really quickly. It happened in a 24-hour period. So for me, Saturday morning I was happily married, living the life. I'd been married for 19 years, together for 22 years. That night got a phone call from my father which planted a little suspicious seed in my mind because we lived in mum and dad's house. Mum was passed by then. She died five months before that. We paid rent, a little bit of rent, and kept putting it in dad's account. He rang me up on that Saturday night, said, we haven't paid our rent for five months and is everything okay? So he didn't say anything to me for five months. Like he hadn't said a word to me. Logged on to the banking. One thing led to another and George came home. He'd taken Morgan to a party at a friend's house. She was only 15. Got back. And all the truth just unravelled in about an hour and a half. Next day, he moved out. So, yeah, in 24 hours, my life went from, you know, normal kind of married happiness to, um, yeah, I'm married to a drug addict, a gambler, and he's left. And I'm now a single mother and didn't have a clue what was going on. It was horrendous. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. I was, Yana, I was catapulted into hell. Mm. Nothing I'd ever been through had prepared me for that moment. And, um, of course, that's when that's when the gap story happened because it was only about three months after that mm-hmm. um, that, that sent me over the edge. But, yeah, it was very traumatic, very traumatic. I think I cried for about 18 months. It took me a long, long time to to get over it and to find my feet and accept my fate, you know, accept that, you know, this is my life now, single mother now, actually divorced. So, yeah, it was it was huge. I never thought I'd be divorced. No one gets married, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, I wonder how long this will last, you know, I'll just get ready for the divorce. You don't, just don't think that. You think yeah. you're married. You're going to be together forever. You're going to grow old together. And that's how I felt about George. And then that happened. Yeah, unbelievable trauma. And it was almost like a double betrayal because not long before that, you guys had both come clean about a couple of things and his gambling had come to light. And then you revealed that you'd been unfaithful. And together you had decided that after a brief period of separation that you were going to work together, put that behind you and recommit to each other and move forward and 
And so having gone through that, you know, to then discover again that he hadn't been able to do that must have been, yeah, much, much more of a betrayal because you'd, you'd recommitted to each other. That's right. So, yeah. You, so Earl, five years before that, George's gambling did come to light. Uh, he lost all of our savings. But, yes, I had cheated on him. I had done the thing that I never thought I would do. Never did I ever think I would do such a thing. But, yeah, it happened and, mm. yeah, it's too long to talk about it now, but you can read it in a book. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> cheat on him and he did what he did and we both did bad things. And we separated for six weeks and decided that uh, we loved each other still too much and we didn't want Morgan. She was only 11 at the time, I think, mm-hmm. and we just didn't want to do that to her. Like we didn't want her to come from that broken home because we were both really um, traumatised by it and she was having a really hard time dealing with that separation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got back together and talked and said, we're going to clean slate, start over, money as well our communication, everything, and uh, that's what we did. Well, that's what I did. Yeah. I really did, you know. I really, because I felt a lot of guilt after what I'd done, even though he forgave me, and I forgave him for what he did with the money and everything. But I did. I was determined to be a better wife, be a better mother, and I was, and I really was. Then when it all turned to shit five years later, I found out he didn't, turn over a new leaf he didn't start a clean slate he had just continued doing uh, what he was doing only in a different way and more so with drugs than gambling that second time around and that's how it all kind of yeah so it was it was very traumatic and um because I didn't see it coming and yeah it was horrendous horrendous should probably let Morgan speak for herself but you know I'm curious to to know how she recovered from that because given that the first separation was so hard on her, I can only imagine that the second time around when she was older and could understand more must have had all kinds of other layers of complexity that came with it. And I was curious whether she had an, still has a relationship with George. Um, a, long st- a very long story short, Yana, she doesn't anymore, but she did. She did for a long time. When it first happened, she... Um, it changed Morgan. I think um, what what happened between her parents changed her as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Those you know years of fifteen, sixteen is very very influential years, and mm-hmm. Morgan became very anxious, panic attacks. Just the betrayal for for her was very different to what it was for me. They were estranged for about eighteen months. Then he came back into her life, and he did that for a couple of years. Then they started having problems. Morgan didn't get along with his new partner, who he is still with and he's been with for a really long time. Yeah, they they had a falling out. George has another daughter now. He had a baby with his new partner. I think she's only like three years old now. Once that child was born, George wiped his hands of Morgan. And like Morgan has tried, she did try and reach out to him quite a few times, especially when she had her son. He never met his grandson, he does know his granddaughter, only for the first year though. Yeah, it's just tragic. I don't I don't really understand it, Yana. You know, I just don't really understand. He has literally, literally just walked away from from that relationship with her. She never hears from him. 
he does send his granddaughter a Christmas gift um, every year in the post to her um, ex-mother-in-law's house. But other than that, other than that, she, you know, he doesn't text her, doesn't call her. So she's kind of given up. So Morgan has done this 360 in her life. Um, she does a lot of counselling. She's come to terms with it. She's come to this real, especially in the last 18 months, this solid place of acceptance where she can actually talk about her father without getting, you know, rolled up or angry or whatever. I'm quite proud of her, actually. She's at a really good place, in a really good place right now. That's yeah. incredible. From what you describe in the book, she was very much a daddy's girl and they had such a tight relationship. So that yeah. just must be so heartbreaking. Yeah, well, Morgan struggled for a long years. She struggled for years with the whole, I don't know, how... Even, like even when I think about it, Yana, as a, as a, imagine your dad just doesn't want anything to do with you, just totally disregards you out of his life, not even curious about. Yeah, I don't know because he's not. You know, he's he's a upstanding citizen. He's not a drug addict anymore. He's yeah. he went to NA. He got clean. He's got a really high powered job. Like mm-hmm. he's a model citizen. Like I said, so different story if your father's still a down-and-out drugger or whatever yeah. you know you kind of expect that not it's hard to understand I wonder if it's partly that shame knowing what happened and and his part in the ending of the family unit and yeah. where yeah. he spiraled to inconceivable to imagine that that dad from the majority of the book no yes. longer exists anymore. Yes, that's exactly it. He no longer exists and it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. And like I said, he's got another daughter now. I think, you know, a bit a bit like Dad with his grandkids, I think George with his new daughter probably it's like he's got this second chance now. He's going to do it right and he's going to do what he should have done first time around. I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing, of course. If I was in his shoes, that's probably what I'd be thinking. I'm going to do it yeah. right this time. I don't suppose you know whether he's read your book, do you? I have no idea, but he probably has. George probably, he always was a bit of a sticky beak. Funny guy. He's a, he's a really funny guy. So he would know. He's a bit of a hacker too, you know. He's a bit of a computer whiz. So he'd be hacking into all the pages and profiles and <laughs> he'd know everything that's going on. He would. He would. Well, George, if you're listening... <laughs> hope you hope you don't mind us talking about you like this. <laughs> you will be listening. I can guarantee it. <laughs> well, feel you know, it in maybe, your bones. Maybe it's an opportunity for reflection, and that it's never too late to come back into somebody's life. Because, as you know all too well, life is very short, and you really only get one chance. So, yes, maybe right. maybe it's an opportunity, George. Yeah, you should. She'd like to hear from you. (laughs) Marcia Abood's book, Every Shitty Thing, as you've heard, has certainly reflected many different happenings that led to the writing of the book. But is there a happy ending for Marcia? Which way did her life turn? And there is one more event to reflect on that shaped a young Marcia's life that she opens up to Yana about next on the Curious Life podcast.
have moved in a much more positive direction for you now and you're happily married again. I am, yes. Yeah. So how do you think you were able to get from such a place? I mean, really, it felt like you were fighting your way through trauma and grief at every turn right up until coming to terms with George's disappearance. Yes. It, at every turn before that, it was the next hit and the next hit and the next hit and the next hit. What was the turning point for you? After I stopped crying 18 months later, I was single for five years, so I was single for a really long time. I had a lot of counselling and I dated a lot of guys in in that five-year period. And then you just there comes a point where you just get sick of that and you just get over it and and said to me one day, Mum, you're going to stop dating these guys. You need to settle down. I was like 47 years old by this <laughs> by this time. It's like, Mum, it's time to calm down and, <laughs> yeah, you need to find someone. And after she said that, I realised that, you know what, I do need to calm down because I'm a bit over it. Mm. I'm a bit over the online dating because it can get quite tedious. I just really wanted to I thought yeah it's time it's time that I open myself up to someone again and I remember I remember the day I was running I went for a run and I said to the universe okay universe I'm ready I want you to send me a man who and I gave and I gave all this criteria (laughs) honest man someone who doesn't have addiction problems someone who is sure of himself and kind and has integrity and likes to communicate. Swear to God, two weeks later, I meet Ramsey, my husband. And it's like I did ask the universe for this man and I got him, but I forgot to say one thing, make sure he doesn't have any children and he had five of them. (laughs) Yeah, five sons, two ex-wives, I might add. Wow. Yeah, so I'm wife number three. So even though, Yana, I, you know, we say I'm at this wonderful, perfect place in my life, which it is compared to the rest of it, it hasn't been all smooth sailing because it's been a lot of blended family stuff, stuff that I never knew anything about. That's come with its own little um, little bits of trauma. It's been a real learning curve, but we're in a really good place now and it's good. Oh, that's terrific. I'm, yeah. so, I'm just so happy to hear that because... After knowing everything that you went through, you wouldn't be surprised, as I said at the beginning of this interview, that m- most people wouldn't survive even one or two of the things that happened to you. It wasn't just one or two things. It was no. relentless for a lifetime. And the fact that you're able to talk about it and write about it and still move your life into a positive direction is remarkable. Thank you, Yana. Thank you. The only way is forward, isn't it? Yeah. Ramsey's very positive. He's a very positive person, quite spiritual. So he mm. opened my eyes to a, a whole new way of looking at the world, mindset. He's all about forgiveness. He came in my life at the right moment and he's taught me a lot about your mindset and that whole thing about what you think about the most is what you will attract into your life and it's so true. It is so true. And I think yeah. Yeah, most of my life in the past has been fighting this trauma, waiting for the next one. So, of course, I'm waiting for it. So it's coming. 
just yeah. been coming in waves. I don't feel that way anymore. I don't. Mm. I'm, I'm much more an optimist these days than a pessimist. I still have been a pessimist, so <laughs> he's given me that. He's he's solid. He's a wonderful man, loving, caring. He's yeah. Don't know what what I'd do without him actually. How lucky am I? Well, yeah, and you absolutely deserve stability and happiness and all of the things that I hope continue to come your way for the rest of your life because God knows you've lived enough lifetimes in the darkness. Oh, thank you, Yana. That's beautiful. I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people will take, uh, there's so much to take away from your story and uh, we'll put the link um, to your website in the show notes so people can have a look at what you're up to. You said something to me recently about some other writing that you'd like to do. So what is next for you in this next big chapter of your life? Well, I would love to write more books. I really would. I've just been so busy with my grandchildren. But, you know, that's temporary. I'll I'll grow up. (laughs) I'll grow older and my daughter won't need me as much. I do. Writing is always in my mind. I dream about it. I think about it all the time. I do have a couple of books. Um, you know, floating around in my up there. And uh, I do want to write a sequel to every shitty thing, which I will call every imperfect thing. Mm. I think it's a book that needs to be told. It's a story that needs to be written. I am going to write it as a fictional memoir, if you mm-hmm. like. Not so I can bend the truth, because trust me, all of it will be true. But when you write it as a fictional memoir, it kind of protects you against people who may want to sue you or whatever. My writing mentor actually said that I should write every shitty thing that way, but I I said, no, no, I don't don't want to do that. But this one's going to be different to that. So I am going to do that one day. I think it, yeah, it's, it's pretty relevant and it's helped me. Like it will help other women because what I'm dealing with now, Yana, is my daughter, Morgan, now is a single mother. Her marriage, her relationship after eight years has broken down. And I think marrying Ramsey and knowing about all this blended family and exes and exes with children, funny that it's really given me this foundation of how I can help my daughter now through this thing that she's going through. The irony of life just continues. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing, yeah. It is. It's Well, they say, you know, everything happens for a reason, even even the shitty stuff. Yes. And you're exactly right. Going through what you went through has prepared you to be an even bigger support for your daughter and to see the way through when she might not be able to see it. That's right, yeah. That's right, Yana. And that's what it's all for. Everything we do in life, I do believe, uh, is is lessons to help us to get us to where we need to be and there's not much that I regret now that I have this mindset about it, mm. even some of those really dark things that we haven't spoken about today but are in the book. Yes. I can even forgive all of that stuff as well because all of it actually did get me to where I am today. And it's helped me become a better mother, I feel. Well, that's a terrific way of looking at it because uh, and I know what you're referring to in the book and I won't give it away because I've, I've given away so much of the book today. <laughs> it's because I just I wanted to know all about it. But there was a very traumatic event that happened in your adolescence 
Yes. That you sort of allude to throughout the book and then we get the full story towards the end. That's right, yes. Yeah, even that event in it in itself is something that can absolutely ruin a person's life and yes. and be something you never recover from. Correct. I wonder on reflection if the fact that you were so resilient and were going through trauma at home and learning to kind of protect yourself and you had all these kind of self-defense mechanisms going on whether you knew it or not and I wonder if that was protective for you in a sense. I think so Yana definitely absolutely yeah of course I didn't know it at the time I was only just on the cusp of 15 so I was still 14 but yeah I'd been through a lot by the time I was 14 that I needed protection from, not just dad, but yeah, other things that you'll read about also. But yeah, you're right. I think that gave me the resilience to get through what I did get through. A lot of women get through it. A lot of women get through it. My life is my teaching. That's what, um, who said that? Mahatma Gandhi said that. We have the same birth number. Mm. His, yeah, that's his thing. My life is my teaching and that is so me. Well, I hope the lessons get easier from this Thank point you. on. So grateful to you for sharing so much of your story today. And like I said, there's just there's so much to take from it. And, and the biggest part of all of this is your shining light through it all and the fact that you can come out the other side. It's giving hope to anyone else who's in a situation where it might there might be family violence or abuse or addiction or any kinds of trauma they might be experiencing, that it is actually possible to come out the other side. It might not be immediate. You might need a lot of support. It might take 18 months of crying, but there is hope. Absolutely. There is always hope. Where can people find you if they would like to get in touch? Yes, well, Yana, you said that you were going to put a link to my website. Mm-hmm. So for your listeners today, I've actually, got, if they don't have my book, they can purchase it from my website with a 50% discount. Ooh. If they use the code word Yana50. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fabulous. Thank you. I thought it was shorter than the Curious Life 50. So yeah. <laughs> Yana50 in the code, yeah, 50% off with that code. Marcia, I just want to thank you so much again for your time and for being so generous with your story and revisiting all of that trauma with us. And I hope that, as I said, this is the, the beginning of the rest of a beautiful, happy life for you. Thank you so much, Yana. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I've loved it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. for listening we would love it if you left us a rating for this episode and catch up with yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on instagram and facebook at the curious life podcast If you liked what you heard in that episode, perhaps a career in psychology might be in your future too. I'm living proof that a degree in psychology can take you just about anywhere. Head to scu.edu.au and see where your future could take you.